Get 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12 when you subscribe this Christmas. And you can get a free bottle of Tattinger champagne. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to the special Christmas edition of Spectator Out Loud. This week we've taken six of our favourite writers from our triple-sized Christmas issue to read their pieces to get you in the festive mood. This week we'll hear from Lara Prendergast on why she's planning to party hard this Christmas, Christopher House on those helping to preserve the UK's medieval churches, Lionel Shriver on the Covid heretics she admires most, Peter Hitchens on Christmas in Russia in the last days of the Soviet Union, Joanna Lumley on getting the keys to the Sistine Chapel, and Caroline Moore on how ghost stories became a British Christmas tradition. First up, it's Lara Prendergast. How well behaved have you been in the second year of COVID? I wouldn't say I've been perfect, but I haven't been that bad. I've done most of the things the government has demanded of me. I've had both my COVID jabs. I've downloaded a vaccine passport, even though I hate the idea. I've squelched antibac gel onto my hands most times I've taken the tube. I've shoved countless cotton swabs down my throat and up my nose. I've worn my mask. We all did lots of this stuff in the hope that life would get back to normal, whatever that means. But the threat of Christmas being cancelled hangs over us once more. According to the headlines, the Prime Minister is battling to save Christmas from Omicron, this year's supervillain. It's last Christmas, the sequel, only this time the virus is even more contagious and can only be defeated if we get our third, fourth, fifth booster jabs. Boris has promised us he is absolutely confident that this Christmas is going to be better than last year's. For his sake, as much as ours, I hope he's right. It's become obvious, though, that the government has realised people like being told they can't go out. The polls suggest that people warm to the government when it threatens another lockdown. Work is dreary and social life can be exhausting. Stay at home. With pleasure, Prime Minister. As we brace ourselves for another winter of hunkering down and hibernation, I find myself feeling like an apostate. I have started to resent and mistrust anyone who is evangelical about time spent indoors. I am suspicious of home comfort obsessives, all of them itching for another lockdown, and that nice, nostalgic sense of selfless idleness that defined 2020. Stay at home was already a popular lifestyle choice prior to the pandemic. In fact, stay-at-homers have built up an entire culture around their quasi-religion. I know all this because before the pandemic hit, I too was a committed stay-at-homer. Home meant everything. I would manically fill mine with beautiful blankets and expensive candles. My favourite plants were the ones I kept indoors. Happiness was to be found in a pair of cashmere socks. If you turned down the lights and squinted hard enough, you could convince yourself that you were living in a cute cottage in the snowy countryside, rather than a dinky flat in Zone 2. Then along came Hugger, and staying at home hit the big time. You might remember Hugger. It was a cultural phenomenon of 2016. Hugger, which is both a noun and a verb, is the Danish term for the mythical pursuit of homeliness, and it was only pipped to the post for the coveted title of Word of the Year by another 2016 phenomenon, also focused on a mythical pursuit of homeliness, Brexit. For publishers, Hugger meant cold, hard cash. 
The Little Book of Hugger by Mike Viking, who hailed from the spurious-sounding Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen, sold more than a million copies worldwide, which must have made Mr Viking very happy indeed. His book included a Hugger manifesto, outlining a ten-point action plan that implored followers to focus on presence, comfort and equality in order to make their lives more Hugger. What the rise of Hugger spoke most to, though, was a belief in the benefits of staying at home as opposed to venturing out. You couldn't hugger properly if you were too far away from your kettle. Thanks to social media, staying in became a way of showing off. You could stylize and photograph your interior life and enjoy the rewarding likes on Instagram without leaving your velvet-covered sofa. Fast forward to early 2020 and the stay-at-homers suddenly found themselves gloriously vindicated. The pandemic led to hugger becoming state-sanctioned. I should have loved it, but I don't. This Christmas, I want to go out and be merry. The government says we shouldn't go to work, but we can party, and I intend to do just that. I hope to find myself in crowded, hot rooms full of friends drinking warm champagne and eating cocktail sausages. I want drunken, amusing car crash conversations with colleagues at the Christmas party, which we then regret the next day. I want to find myself in pubs festooned with tinsel, toasting people I don't know. I want carols in packed churches with everyone singing with all the might of their lungs. I want to see my family on Christmas Day. I know it's not Covid secure to do all this. It's safer to stay at home, and even suggesting such mirth is fairly sacrilegious. The hoogers rule, and the government knows it. As evidence for this theory, I present this year's Global Scented Candles Market Report, which predicts that the worldwide market for smelly candles will grow from $553 million in 2020 to $690 million by 2028. The light at the end of the tunnel may just be a diptyque candle glimmering in the dark. All this ominous domesticity has made me want to rebel. I'm not staying at home. This year, I'm going out. Because it's not up to the Prime Minister to save Christmas. It's up to us. That was Lara Prendergast. Next, it's Christopher House. There's a plateau of neglect upon which an old church seems to sit for a while, blessedly spared from improvement. But on the far side of the plateau, the land falls away steeply to closure, vandalism and ruination. St Mary's Church, Munden, possessed of a rare tranquillity, had begun slipping off the plateau by 1975. The nave was exposed to rain by a gappy roof, brambles lashed in the wind at the broken windows, demolition was proposed. But in that year it was taken into the care of a small voluntary organisation, Friends of Friendless Churches. So it was that I could find myself standing in the dimness of the church on a winter afternoon, there being no electric light, talking to a volunteer, Christine MacDonald, who has lived within half a mile all her life. As teenagers before 1975, she said, we saw the signs, danger, keep out, as a challenge, and got in through a broken window. It stank of mice and mould from sopping hymn books. 
and there were dead birds in the rubbish on the floor. We had a game, and the forfeit was to stay on your own in the church for ten minutes. It was scary. Now, with the church set in order but not redecorated, she finds the scariness turned into a specialness hard to put into words. It's as if someone is watching over you in a welcome way. I feel very much at home here. It's a place for quiet contemplation. This blessed plot where St Mary's stands, sheltered in a little wood among open fields, was once set within a moat. It lies in that unfashionable county of Essex. But it's a, an antidote to the only way is Essex. Of course there are ugly bungalows not far away, but the village of Munden had moved from its surroundings to drier ground two or three hundred years ago. The beauties of Essex are evident round here. Old tile-roofed houses with upper stories weatherboarded or decorated with pargeted patterns in plaster. A sudden flock of birds wheeling against a stand of willows, their bare switches of twig bright in a patch of sunshine. Teasels stand in the hedgeless field boundary by the narrow road. The asphalt runs out before you reach the clearing where the timber bell tower of St Mary's rises not so high above a skirt of old handmade tiles. I see a living continuity in the bell named Vincent that's hung in this tower ever since it was cast in 1400. Vincentius reboat ut cuncta noxia tolat, it says round the bell bow. Vincent resounds to drive away all harmful things. We even know the name of the bell founder, John Langhorn, who made a cousin of Vincent now in the Day. St Mary's Church demonstrates the truth of a principle of that sensitive Church of England architect, Ninian Comper, which he called unity by inclusion. The church structure is fundamentally 14th century. Its strangest feature is also its most successful. The tower has, as its corners, four great oak trees, each axed from round to a square shape. You find yourself in their midst when you walk into the low west door. But to keep the tower steady in the marshy ground, thick balks were set to prop it at angles, braced by cross-members. That structure produces what looks like a skirt of roof and a low wall from the outside. Passing under a stone arch, the visitor can see the red terracotta tiles sloping downhill towards the chancel via the small nave lined with 18 well-preserved Georgian box pews. We church crawlers like the look of box pews, forgetting perhaps the pain of thigh bones wedged onto their narrow seats for a long Georgian sermon. On the nave wall above those pews is a wonderfully preserved bit of painting from the 14th century, the head of a king with a medieval crown. 
This must be St Edmund, King of East Anglia and Martyr, whose body was filled as full of arrows as a hedgehog has quills by wicked pagan Norse raiders more than 1,100 years ago. Munden is only five miles or so from Malden on the wide Blackwater, where in 991 the Anglo-Saxons fought the Vikings. It is celebrated by a poem of subtle insight written near the time. The point to notice is that the English, the East Angles, lost. That made them the heroes. But I think there's no useful outcome today in losing the battle to keep churches from ruin and true to their purpose. But looking out of the plain glass windows eastward from St Mary's, you might think that the Vikings were nearby still. Munden sits in marshy ground on the Dengi Peninsula, the black water to the north, the crouch to the south, and to the east, land turning into water. By the sea stands St Peter on the Wall, the bare Anglo-Saxon church to which people now like to walk in pilgrimage, east from the ancient timber-built Greenstead Church close to London's central line, and they come via Munden. Not so long ago, a spouse making a match at Munden risked death from ague, the recurring malaria from marsh mosquitoes to which only local people had resistance. The unsteady land with clay pockets explains the cracks in the walls of St Mary's. In the 18th century, the chancel fell down. From the outside, one of the rebuilt walls is made of lovely red and bluish checkering of handmade bricks. On the other side of the church, a medieval doorway is sheltered by a 16th century wooden porch, about which James Betley, the recent reviser of Pevsner's Buildings of England, volume for Essex, enthuses as one of the finest pieces of wood carving in the county. How, though, can one place St Mary's aright in the architectural heritage of this country? It's not Westminster Abbey. That is its peculiar virtue. Among the 29 churches in England looked after by the Friends of Friendless Churches, another 29 being in Wales, it is the favourite of Rachel Morley, the charity's energetic young director and only full-time employee. The Friends were started in 1957 by Ivor Bulmer Thomas, who found support from people like John Piper and John Betjeman. Bulmer Thomas and his wife Joan Bulmer, whose name he added to his own, funded the charity's work themselves during their lifetime. But there are 10,000 medieval parish churches in England. Parishes cover the whole country and serve anyone who lives in them. Anglican, atheist or Muggletonian. But who will pay to keep them from ruin? Not, I fear, the church commissioners of the C of E, who are hot about the bottom line, but not, in my opinion, sensitive to communities. In some moods, I think it would be better to let a church fall back into broken stone. 
grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky, as Philip Larkin put it in church-going, rather than to turn it into a, an unwanted extra coffee shop or a house for a commuting executive. But then I look at a place like St Mary's, Munden, technically redundant, like a miniature windswept Torcello Cathedral in the Venetian Lagoon, but freely open to visitors. And I'm glad that volunteers like Christine MacDonald keep it open for people and persevere in propping up its walls. That was Christopher House. Next, it's Lionel Shriver. A few years back, a hackneyed journalistic come-hither led me to a sober reckoning. Would I write about someone alive today whom I especially admire? I couldn't think of anyone I held in high esteem who wasn't dead. Either I was surrounded by mediocrities, or I was an ungenerous, withholding jerk. Keen to keep our Christmas issue nominally upbeat, not Shriver's strong suit, I'm pleased to discover that these days I admire a host of folks who aren't dead. Some are colleagues or acquaintances, others I've never met. While they don't all embrace the same catechism, they've one thing in common. They depart from established orthodoxy on COVID-19. What they share, then, is an anti-catechism. I've been vocal about my dismay over unquestioning public capitulation to wholesale rescindment of civil liberties during this pandemic. I've raised the alarm over the irrationality of divisive but bizarrely popular vaccine mandates and passports when the inoculated also catch and spread this disease. I've decried the collusion of government, big tech, and the mainstream media all singing in such perfect harmony that they could go on tour as a Motown revival band. But the COVID story has not altogether been one of unrelenting conformity. Often at some cost to themselves, a range of British journalists, academics, doctors, and, yes, even politicians, have sung piercingly off-key. I'm therefore taking this seasonal opportunity to thank these perverse, if not downright self-destructive, outliers upon whom for the past 20 months I've personally relied to maintain my sanity and my faith in humanity. Beginning the second week of the UK's original lockdown, our own Toby Young has doggedly put out a free daily newsletter, which is still the first thing I read when I get up. Lockdown Skeptics has now morphed into the more broad-based The Daily Skeptic, but under both titles, the newsletter has encapsulated new scientific studies at odds with stock narratives, excerpted dissenting articles, and provided a forum for isolated prisoners of quasi-police states like Australia. The bulletin has furnished hyperlinks to thousands of blogs, interviews, podcasts, and essays that collectively reassure us that not everyone is a robot or an idiot, and civilization isn't, or not completely, kaput. That newsletter is meaty enough to last through a large, strong coffee, and compelling enough that some mornings the coffee gets cold. 
on the Telegraph podcast Planet Normal. Allison Pearson and Liam Halligan have managed a beguiling balance of hard-hitting commentary and jocular repartee. They've never let up on NHS neglect of non-COVID patients and disappearing face-to-face GP appointments. Through my headphones in the kitchen, their congenial company has seen me through mounds of chopped onions, bulbs of peeled garlic, and bags of individually shelled pistachios, even during the long months when asking friends over to help me eat all this stuff was against the law. Former Supreme Court Justice Jonathan Sumption has tirelessly advanced the case that subjugating democracy to public health tyranny puts the West in a grave political danger bound to persist beyond the pandemic. Ever temperate, articulate, and urbane, Sumption bears a faint resemblance to my husband, who never twigs that I mean the comparison as a big compliment. Every week, professional curmudgeon Peter Hitchens has given grumpy, disgusted, and deliciously disdainful interviews on talk radio. He's even appeared in legacy media, in the rare instances a discouraging word about illiberal, epidemiologically inane government policy is allowed on mainstream shows. Hitchens' primary shortcoming is a belligerent conviction that he's the only person standing up to the new authoritarianism. Look around you, Peter. You may spurn the helping hand, but you have confederates. The crew at Spiked, among them Brendan O'Neill, Fraser Myers, and Tom Slater, have remorselessly produced COVID content against the grain. Ditto the faux-naive, self-styled nerds at trigonometry. True to its name, Unheard has consistently run pieces that contest received coronavirus wisdom, and I'd particularly commend terrific recent essays by Paul Kingsnorth, How Fear Fuels the Vaccine Wars, and Matthew Crawford, The New Public Health Despotism. Along with many other freelancers, Ross Clark, Matt Ridley, and Douglas Murray have swum against an exhausting tide of ideological uniformity. The oncologist Carol Sikora has warned about the dire consequences of blinkered obsession with COVID for cancer patients. Epidemiologists such as Sinetra Gupta and Carl Hennigan have put reputations on the line to interrogate known facts in their profession. Shockers, even a handful of British politicians have stuck up for their constituencies' civil rights, including MPs Steve Baker and Sir Desmond Swain. Masks are about sending a message. Well, I don't like the message. Even if you dismiss these apostates as crackpots, you might at least concur that a society whose public voices all chime with the government's line is unwholesome. From now on, What constrains the state from imposing previously unthinkable restrictions on civil liberty to achieve whatever capricious end it wishes to attain? Are vaccine side effects underreported? Why do the double vaccinated account for so many infections? Do vaccine passport schemes achieve anything? 
do school closures? What hard data supports mask wearing? Whatever their answers, the raising of such questions is in the larger public interest. For the most part, I've found the pandemic's lessons on human nature to be depressing. Low. Most people are easily manipulated through fear so that citizens in seemingly stable, storied democracies can be persuaded to trammel their constitutions over the course of a few days. Most people contain a kernel of authoritarianism that only requires the right circumstances to germinate. Most people can be enticed to gleefully rat on their neighbors. Most people delight in viciously demonizing an outgroup. Yet just this once, let's celebrate that everyone isn't most people. We haven't the space to pay tribute to all the dissidents who have demonstrated a rare capacity for independent thought during what long ago became a more political than medical crisis. But you know who you are. Merry Christmas. Heretics. That was Lionel Shriver. Next we have Peter Hitchens. A red Christmas, the last celebration of Christmas in the USSR. It was on Christmas morning in Moscow in 1990 that my daughter, then aged seven, realised that Santa Claus was not to be trusted. She had made the usual elaborate suggestions to him in a letter to Lapland, perhaps that being posted from a frozen region it would get through more readily. But when she came to rip open her gifts, the parcels did not contain the things she had hoped for. Instead, they were full of pale, oddly coloured and sometimes faintly dangerous Soviet products, breathing the last enchantments of the 1930s. Mrs Hitchens had queued fiercely to buy these delights in the colossal Children's World department store, which stood just across the road from KGB headquarters. Christmas in the evil empire was different, you see, though not always worse. By the time we went to live there, at the end of the Gorbachev era, the festival was no longer actually banned in Soviet Moscow. Young pioneers no longer patrolled the wintry streets searching for subversive Christmas trees, as they had done in the early years of the Leninist state. The air no longer trembled with the sound of cathedrals being dynamited or of great bells being torn from their towers and spitefully smashed, as it had done in Stalin's day. There were even attempts to restore some of the many Orthodox churches and monasteries desecrated and befouled by use as warehouses or reformatories. The League of the Militant Godless, once a huge semi-official organisation dedicated to mockery and hatred of God, of priests and believers, had quietly vanished during the war against Hitler. God had, during that odd period, proved a useful comrade, at least as long as the war went on. He had been exiled and cancelled again since, but not with quite the same scorn as before. In any case, our Western Nativity Festival was far too early for those remaining Russians who had somehow managed to cling to faith during the long decades of murder, desecration, intimidation and outright persecution. Orthodox Christmas, still governed by a more ancient calendar than ours, falls in early January. And in 1990, an Anglican Christmas in the Soviet capital was still a personal matter. St Andrew's Anglican Church, in Victorian times, the centre of a thriving English community 
on the very borders of Western civilization, was still at that time requisitioned by a cold-hearted atheist government and forced to serve as a state-run recording studio. So it was just us and a tatty copy of the 1662 prayer book. The Kremlin had fought fairly successfully to blot out all recollection of the birth of our saviour from normal life, especially among children. Instead, it had encouraged a huge celebration of the new year, just a few days before the Orthodox nativity. Stalin had even abandoned his original attempt to eradicate the Russian Santa Claus, a hard-drinking, white-bearded character called Died Maroz, Grandfather Frost, and his female subordinate, the Snow Maiden. People liked them too much. So the Communist Party had repurposed them to serve the new order. They were absorbed into the atheist New Year festivities, including a Communist New Year tree that looked suspiciously like a Christmas tree, unless adorned with an official red star. The New Year feast was all-encompassing, impressive and impossible to ignore. The street on which we lived was an immensely wide avenue built for giants. It roared day and night with dirty, spluttering vehicles. Its centre lane much used by the Politburo's huge, snarling limousines. Yet even this highway fell silent for the holiday, and in that dark city it was astonishing to see the festive lights switched on, making it, for a few brief hours, as bright as a western capital. But this was not our celebration. It was its enemy. I have disliked the New Year heartily ever since. So in 1990, our first Christmas in the Russian capital and what would turn out to be the last Christmas in the USSR, our Western Christian arrangements were pretty much up to us in the few square yards we occupied. What were we to do to mark it out from the normal crazy days of Soviet life? We did not, as some expatriates did, believe in hurrying back home as often as we could. We had decided to live in Moscow, and we were damn well going to do so, apart from an annual few weeks in the summer. In those days, it was dangerous to the spirit to go home, even for a day or two. You immediately lost the hard carapace of grim humour and shared adversity built up over months of endurance, and you had to spend miserable weeks readjusting again on your return. Better, we thought, to stay and put up with it. You might, in that way, discover unexpected pleasures, and we did. We took family holidays in Samarkand or on the Black Sea, learned to bribe doormen and waiters at enjoyable Soviet restaurants, and went for weekends away in Leningrad or Kiev. My wife, the daughter and granddaughter of troublemaking journalists, was not dismayed by the twisted, corrupt, yet often thrilling confusion of dying communism. She had been with me several times into the communist world, which fascinated us. She had not been surprised the previous Christmas Eve to find herself taking down my report from Bucharest, dictated while I hid under the bed as tracer bullets went whizzing past my hotel. Whatever is that noise? She asked me at one point. She drove our mangled Volvo, round by a Soviet lorry and virtually impossible to repair, down the immense streets with their mad traffic, and their vast craters filled with freezing chocolate-coloured mud, and did not mind. So contriving a family Christmas in the capital of the evil empire was just another task. And so to her we owed two very lovely Christmases, quite unlike anything before or since. The first and most moving was in our beautiful and illegally rented elite apartment, with its haunting views across the mysterious city, where our neighbours were mostly KGB high-ups, or worse. The Brezhnev family lived in a vast flat on the opposite side of the snowy courtyard. 
patrolled by a severe neighborhood watch of beaky Russian grandmas. My wife had managed to make this slightly sinister location into a home for our small family and a place of hospitality for other Westerners sharing our adventure. I can't now work out exactly when our Christmas dinner was supposed to be in 1990 because it was delayed and disrupted so many times as I and our guests had to repeatedly rush off to the telephone. The Congress of People's Deputies was in session and for the first time was functioning quite like a real parliament. And the 25th of December was just another day of unpredictable events and news. It was sandwiched between the melodramatic resignation of the Foreign Minister, Eduard Shevardnadze, warning that dictatorship threatened, and the appointment of the sinister clown, Gennady Yanayev, as Vice President. Shevardnadze was right to worry. A few months later, Yanayev, drunk and trembling, would lead a Stalinist push. The fall of the Soviet Union seems inevitable now, but it didn't then. Communist spite and violence were seething among the old guard of the KGB, our neighbours. Some would kill rather than let go of power. A few days later, I would see horrible violence in Vilnius as the old Bolshevik monster showed it was not yet dead. But in the midst of it, we made a lighted island of happiness and peace, as Winston Churchill described another embattled Christmas long ago. A tree was easy. We simply converted a scrawny Soviet New Year tree with decorations brought from home and somehow got past the Soviet customs. But the meal was a special sentimental triumph. Moscow in 1990 was still the capital of an Asian and Caucasian empire. My wife had become skilled at negotiating the gangster-haunted markets of Moscow, most of them near one of the great railway stations, which were the gateways to the USSR's colonial dominions in the Caucasus on the Black Sea and stretching into Central Asia. The people who sold at these markets were generally the people who had grown and prepared the produce and travelled hundreds of miles by train to make a small profit from privileged Muscovites. For the Christmas pudding, she found delicious dried fruits from the shores of the Caspian Sea and dark, fierce brandy from Armenia. These were the old-fashioned, more potent tastes of a less modernised world, such as our grandparents might have known. It was, beyond doubt, the best Christmas pudding I've ever eaten. Georgia supplied the wines, the wistful red Mukazani, unlike any Western vintage, and the astringent white Sinandali. Soviet champagne which at the time I used to joke was a form of chemical warfare, was only for the courageous or the desperate. Once had been enough for us. And of course, there was no turkey. Instead, there was the goose. My wife, after failing to find anything appealing in one of the markets, had been walking down a side street nearby when she found the old woman in black, a nervous peasant with one thing to sell. No doubt she was trying to avoid paying protection money to whatever mafia controlled the actual market building. She looked as if she might have some magic beans available if asked nicely, but the goose was magical enough. They quickly concluded with a perfect bargain, in which the woman received far more rubles than she had dreamed of, and we in turn could not believe how cheap it was. I've never in my life eaten a more delicious goose, like a giant wild duck, not greasy as western geese are, tasting as if it had been reared in a snowy forest, because it had been. The dark afternoon and evening still glitter in my memory, outside the brown slush and dirt of Soviet modernity and the yelling, fist-pounding politics of an evil state, and it truly was, flailing in its death agony. Inside, a distillation of all that was good in our culture and theirs, and crowned with a small and defiant remembrance of the greatest enemy tyranny ever had, 
our Lord Jesus Christ. That was Peter Hitchens. But ultimately, we have Joanna Lumley. After being landlocked for the past 18 months, it was a particular thrill to set off to film in three European capitals, Berlin, Paris and Rome. As always, it is my duty to supply and prepare my wardrobe for each documentary, having been given a list of the things we shall be doing so that I can be suitably dressed for each occasion. Conscious of the waste-not-want-not attitude, which has intensified as the planet warms, I've devised a sort of dressing-up box of old clothes which can be reworn, your chance to see again, and made slightly different by adding a scarf or rolling up the sleeves or trouser legs or occasionally wearing the garment inside out. It is far easier to dress for Mongolia or Kyrgyzstan than for Paris. In vast landscapes, bright colours mean you can be spotted as you round up yaks or cross a rope bridge, and cameras love colour. In Paris, however, black is de rigueur, and even my gold earrings and dark green shirt, much praised in Azerbaijan, were judged to be rather common. Grey is as loud as you should go, colour-wise. To go into the burnt-out interior of Notre-Dame, however, to see the repairs being carried out, meant a full disposable hazmat suit and hard hat, as there may have been lead dust lingering. The nave of the great cathedral is almost invisible under the mass of scaffolding, which protects and supports what remains of the roof. Miraculously, all the stained-glass windows, the organ and the stonework were unharmed. Philippe Villeneuve, the architect in charge of the restoration, identifies so strongly with the cathedral that he has Viollet-le-Duc's spire tattooed on his arm. He's determined that it'll be reopened in time for the Olympic Games in Paris in 2024. The Parisians have decided that it should be exactly as it was before the fire. Tempelhof, the massive airport in Berlin, was designed in 1936 to be the gateway to the new Third Reich capital of Germania. History changed those plans forever, and gradually the great runways and vast terminal emptied itself of passengers and aircraft. After much debate about whether it should be scrapped altogether or transformed into flats and factories, the Berliners voted to leave it just as it is. Its disturbing past is now flattened by the wheels of skateboarders and rollerbladers, bicycles and pushchairs. People picnic in the rough grass beside the main runway and larks sing overhead. In the eastern outskirts of Rome, a disused salami factory has been turned into the strangest museum of art imaginable. Refugees and migrants from Morocco, Romania, Ukraine and Eritrea were squatting illegally in the ramshackle remains in danger of being evicted. The anthropologist and curator Giorgio De Finis saw that art would legitimise the space and over time more than 200 artists arrived to paint the walls and create installations. If anyone tried to drive the immigrants out, they would have to destroy valuable artworks. Some of the inhabitants of the Museum of the Other and Elsewhere, MAM, have been there for 35 years. I spoke to two Sudanese refugees in their cold and tiny room, their humble belongings neatly arranged, tea offered, a friendly welcome extended. They love it, although it is bitter in winter and stifling in summer. They share a standpipe with the other residents, 
and count themselves fortunate to be there. Mohammed said he plans to go back to Darfur eventually, but he had to escape to save his life. As I knelt to fill my water bottle from one of the two and a half thousand free water fountains, which are at almost every street corner in central Rome, an old woman approached, being helped along by a carer. By old, I mean, I thought she was the wrong side of 95 at least. She said the kindest things to me in broken English about how much she loved the travel shows and the entertainment I'd provided over the years. I hope I look like you when I am your age, she said, and smiled fondly as she trundled off. To the Vatican Museum, long before dawn, rain coming down sideways gleamed on the cobbled streets. Gianni Crea, the keeper of the keys, would allow me to unlock the great doors long before the public was let in. There are 2,787 keys to the Vatican treasures, and there are five copies of each, all save one. There is only one key to the Sistine Chapel, and it's kept in a sealed envelope, in a locked safe, in a bunker, behind locked doors. We followed his torch, jingling and rattling like Mr Bojangles as we scurried along the seven kilometres of indescribably rich corridors and galleries, me holding the precious Sistine key in its envelope. Finally, he told me to open the envelope and take out the key and open the chapel, two turns to the left. We went in. His torchlight swished over Michelangelo's miraculous paintings in silence. I was born under a lucky star. That was Joanna Lumley. And finally, Caroline Moore. Ghosts of Christmas Past. A chilling Victorian tradition. A sad tale's best for winter, says little Mamilius in the winter's tale. I have one of sprites and goblins. He is dead by Act Three. Ghost stories have always been best told on a midwinter night, preferably aloud, in a group drawn close together around a blazing fire. Pleasure comes from awareness of the icy cold and dark hemming our small convivial light. There is a particular frisson in the contrast between in here and out there, between the snug us and a possibly malign them, the known and the unknown. And Christmas Eve, traditionally, was the time to swap ghost stories, drawing upon the early Christian notion that spirits and demons had a peculiar freedom on the night before an especially holy day. Halloween, the night before All Hallows or All Saints' Day, has now usurped this licence, but in Victorian times... As Jerome K. Jerome remarked, the average orthodox ghost does his one turn a year on Christmas Eve and is satisfied. The oral tradition of telling ghost tales at Christmas had become literary orthodoxy in Victorian times, thanks to Charles Dickens and to the extraordinary proliferation of periodicals in the 19th century. Many of these imitated household words in producing a special ghost-filled Christmas issue. The genre rapidly spawned clichés. 
Many of the innumerable stories in the back numbers of these magazines are the Victorian equivalent of Christmas repeats upon television. And the feeling of familiarity is not helped by the fact that so many ghost stories are themselves tales of ghostly reenactments, repeats of repeats, as it were. If a murderous event is supposed to recur year after year, it can lack tension, which has to be whipped up by lashings of gothic melodrama. Luminous skulls, chains, dripping daggers, shrieks, haunted organs, hidden chambers and monks' habits are stock in trade. Lost wills, buried treasure and unburied corpses prey upon the minds of the departed. Most ghosts haunt ancient houses and prefer to appear to guests, though ancestral curses and banshees snobbishly stick to titled landowners and their heirs. Guests who are given a bedroom in the West Wing or the Yellow Chamber may be unsuspecting, in which case they often do not first realise that the ghost is a ghost at all, or sceptical, in which case they deserve to be dosed with something much, much nastier. Side effects include Marie Antoinette syndrome, palsy, madness and death. In an overcrowded market, originality became difficult. In Thurlow's Ghost Story by John Kendrick Bangs, the narrator has a deadline looming to, to provide a Christmas story for the idler. The psychological darkness from which his supernatural visitations come is writer's block. As the narrator says, attempting to spur himself on, most Christmas stories provided were neither original nor even especially Christmassy. The usual ghostly tale, merely with a dash of Christmas flavour thrown in here and there. There are stories, however, in which Christmas is central to the atmosphere, and some writers too who rise above snug cliché and reinvent the ghost story to make us realise that the darkness may, after all, not be out there, but within us. Christmas provides good starting points for horror. There is the weather. There is snow, of course, cutting off all communications, fingering the window panes. I am afraid we shall have a terrible winter, can be said in a strange kind of meaning way. Mrs Gaskell, Old Nurse's Story. In the first half of the 19th century, England was in the throes of a mini ice age, and for the first eight years of Dickens's life there was a white Christmas every year. By 1891, however, Jerome K. Jerome describes the typical Christmas Eve as dismal, cold, muddy and wet. In Algernon Blackwood's terrifying story, The Kit Bag, 1908, the narrator is packing on Christmas Eve to escape from the sleety rain. His surroundings are now not an ancient mansion, but an old house, subdivided into cheerless lodgings, and he is attempting to escape to real Christmas snow for a skiing holiday. But first he has to pack. Blackwood is a master at building the tension. It is difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, 
as ice gathers upon the surface of still water. Disconcertingly unchristmassy weather features in E.F. Benson's story, Between the Lights, 1912. On a conventionally snowy Christmas Eve, when hackneyed ghost stories are being told, one guest tells of his experiences of the year before, when it was so warm and sunny on the day before Christmas that the guests played croquet on the lawn. The fear out there in this tale is not climate change, that horror was yet to be invented, but something fetid and primordial. Seasonal Christmas games can also lend themselves to the genre of fear. For a child, hide-and-seek is always edged with terror. Though there is no ghost in it, the ballad of the mistletoe bough was morbidly popular in Victorian times. A bride, married on Christmas Day, hides for a game in an old oak chest. Her skeleton is discovered years later. Christmas weddings were popular in Victorian times. For the modern woman, the idea of organising both simultaneously is itself horrific. A Christmas house party and game of hide-and-seek in a rambling country house with the lights turned off is the setting for a classic old-fashioned ghost story, Smee, by A.M. Burridge. The title is the name of the game, where players call out, or not, a corruption of It's Me. Equally, anyone who remembers their own very early childhood will remember being frightened by a toy, probably given by a well-intentioned uncle. Dickens, of course, has perfect recall. In A Christmas Tree, he describes that infernal snuff-box out of which there sprang a demoniacal counsellor in a black gown with an obnoxious head of hair and a red-cloth mouth wide open who was not to be endured on any terms. An early tale of haunted toys, 1859, is The Wondersmith by Fitzjames O'Brien in which an army of tiny wooden dolls are animated by evil spirits and armed with poison to kill Christian children on Christmas Day. Unfortunately, the us and them in this story is unpleasantly racist. The masterminds are evil gypsies. Haunted dolls' houses are nowadays two a penny, but I can think of only one haunted nativity set in Jeanette Winterson's Dark Christmas though it is the sound of a marble being rolled on a wooden floor in the attic above, which is truly horrifying. M.R. James may have told his stories at Christmas to a small audience of his academic colleagues and King's College choristers. Did he acknowledge any dark resemblance between himself and Mr. Carswell in Casting the Runes, who terrified local children with a winter slideshow featuring a horrible hopping creature in white. But only one of his stories has a Christmas setting, and marionettes as childishly horrible as Dickens's Jack in the Box. The story of a disappearance and an appearance features a missing clergyman and a demonic Punch and Judy show. Another uncanny Christmas show is central to Visiting Star by Robert Aikman. Aikman's extraordinary stories are rarely ghost stories, exactly. 
he preferred to call them strange tales, they have the oddly detailed lucidity and surreal pervasive unease of a bad dream. It was Aikman who remarked that the true ghost story is akin to poetry. This is exemplified by one of the very best ghost stories ever written, The Open Door and Mrs Oliphant, not to be confused with another ghost story with the same name published in the same year, 1882, by Charlotte Riddell. Mrs Oliphant's is not strictly a Christmas ghost, but it is undoubtedly a wintry, sad tale. A voice in the cold dark, crying heartbreakingly at a ruined door. Oh, mother, let me in! Oh, mother, let me in! The story is hauntingly powerful because it comes from perilous stuff within. By the time Mrs Oliphant wrote this story, she was a widow who had lost two children in infancy and a beloved daughter aged 11. She was supporting not only her own surviving children, but two bankrupt brothers, one of them a widower with three children, one an alcoholic and an orphaned cousin. Surrounded by feckless men, she saw her own sons growing up sickly and dependent. In this story, Oliphant summons up the dark emotions which cannot be allowed into her conscious mind. Black loss, longing and despair at the death of her child, which are incompatible both with her Christian faith and with the need to keep on going, and her agonised helplessness, even guilt, at not being able to be there for her daughter on the threshold of death. And there is another layer of unmentionable feeling. In another of her stories, New Year's Day, the underlying guilt is a parental failure in the upbringing of her sons, and the ghost in this story was in its past life, like her own boys, weak and easily led away. Ghosts, it is often said, return because of unfinished business. It is the unfinished business within a writer's soul that creates the truest poetic ghost stories. That was Caroline Moore. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed these stories, please pick up a copy of our Christmas issue in stores now. Also, if you subscribe to The Spectator magazine this Christmas, you'll get the next 12 issues in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but you'll also receive a bottle of Tattinger champagne worth £42. Join the party today at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.